0: Hello and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host Icy Sedgwick. We are finally into September, I can't believe where this year has gone, and this month we're going to be doing things like urban folklore and stuff to do with the urban environment, because you know, why not? And it might be the last chance some of us have to actually get out before the weather turns nasty. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we headed to Manchester to explore a story related to Dr John Dee, and that was the... John Day episode, and in it I mentioned a tale involving a group of psychogeographers and their attempts to contact the good Doctor spirit. In that episode I said did anyone want an episode about psychogeography as a practice related to folklore. People said yes, so here it is. Now we're going to be walking the city in this episode, so put on your most comfy boots, pack a drink and a snack and let's explore this fascinating way to encounter the landscape and its folklore. So the first thing you're probably wondering is what is psychogeography? Now it's not the easiest of terms to define and over the years it's taken on a whole range of meanings. Academics describe it one way, practitioners another and some of you listening to this will probably disagree with the way that I describe it and if you do just remember that there is no single way to practice it. Now the term psychogeography can be traced back to 1950s Paris and a chap called Guy Debord who was part of the situationist movement trying to make it a legitimate term. It was often used to describe things to do with art and literature and so on but in essence it describes the point where psychology and geography meet and it's the way that you explore the behavioral impact of an urban place on a person. So in other words people look at how other people behave based on the space around them and yes there is a link with folklore and we're going to get to that. Chris Rose further explains the focus on emotion and that you put the emphasis on walking and paying critical attention to the landscape and the structures that have shaped it and the paying attention bit is key here. Noted psychogeographer Will Self notes that some people see psychogeography as being all about the personality of a place and other people sort of do these really like super detailed examinations of particular locations on multiple levels. So One psychogeographer might focus on a whole area, another might pick a specific location and do more of a cross-section of it. Now, many look back to the flaneur of 19th century Paris for the true origins of psychogeography, and Charles Baudelaire is often credited with coining the term to describe men who observed the city as they strolled around. In the UK, we kind of had the dandy as an alternative, so there were often these intellectuals, intelligent people, and they were basically they had the leisure time to stroll around the city and just pay attention to what was around them and the surrealists later got involved and the surrealists if you've never come across them before do this really cool thing called automatic writing where you just basically let your hand move and eventually see what comes out and it's supposed to be a way for the unconscious mind to make itself known sort of through the movement of your hand and the pen across the page what they then did was they just basically turn that into a form of, of urban walking so you would walk around a city governed by where you were led to walk by your unconscious but all of this is just barely scratching the surface because there's literally no specific method for doing psychogeography different people practice it in different ways and for very different reasons now tina richardson points out that urban walking as it's sometimes known has a whole range of things that a person might look out for so these walkers might explore spaces as they appear during the day compared to the way that they appear at night. Or they might do it during different weather conditions. I don't really want to go into the different theoretical approaches or even really the history because there are books like Merlin Coverley's title that cover all of that kind of stuff in depth. Because what I want to talk about is how you do it and how it ties into folklore. So how do you actually do psychogeography? First of all, you walk, you don't drive. You don't even really use public transport if you can avoid it. Chris Rose explains that this is because walking gives you the chance to look, think and explore where you are because you're not just going for a nice stroll. Psychogeographers actively pay attention to the world around them but they also have their stroll without planning a route or even necessarily having a destination in mind. So you might decide that you're going to explore part of your hometown for example. So I'm in Newcastle, so I might decide to leave the rather dim confines of the metro system at Haymarket Station. I would then choose a direction and leave the station and then simply walk. And then I would get to maybe a a turning and go, ooh, I'm going to go down here and then follow that street and so on. While walking, I would pay attention to what's around me. I might take notes, I might take photographs, or I might choose to focus on a specific thing, like the signs I see, or graffiti, or whatever it might be. Alternatively, you might get on the first bus outside your house, count 15 stops, and then get off. And then you would just start walking in that area. Or, and this is probably my favorite, just go to Venice and try to find your hotel without using Google Maps. Good luck. But anyway, however you want to do psychogeography is largely right. And Tina Richardson explains that It's the psychogeographer who makes psychogeography happen. So, so far, I've focused on the subject in terms of its urban heritage and Merlin Coverley notes in the introduction of the 2018 reissue of his 2006 book on the topic that psychogeography was once preoccupied with towns and cities and London in particular became quite overly studied. So, by the time of the reissue, the urban focus had been basically eclipsed by a growing preoccupation with the wild places of the natural world. Now, because nature writing isn't really anything new, Merlin Coverley tends towards the indistinct borderlands at the edge of the urban landscape, and this is where it's neither rural nor urban. They tend to attract psychogeographers precisely because they're neither one thing nor the other. And, in quite an interesting twist, many ghost stories crop up in these in-between places, and in the field of Gothic studies they're known as liminal spaces, and liminal just means sort of that state between something. So sunrise or sunset or liminal times because they're on the cusp of two distinct states and places can basically do the same thing. So how does psychogeography actually link with folklore? Because of the really intense focus on quite a small area, psychogeography can quite easily tip into local history and the psychogeographer either knows what was there before and looks for signs or they see the signs and then research backwards to find out what they mean. And this really deep penetration into an urban area's past uncovers its legends, its superstitions, and its quirks, all of which pop up in its folklore. Chris Rose makes a lot of connections between psychogeography and psychotherapy, and in particular for her, what is said is linked to where it's said. And it's basically the idea that the impact of an environment shapes the person who's in the environment, which isn't really that different from psychogeography and, I would also argue, folklore. And this bit is just personal opinion. But space and place are so important to folklore. And granted, the same stories often emerge in different locations. Look at Jenny Greenteeth appearing in a whole host of ponds and rivers around the UK. Or countless grey lady ghosts, often with the same backstory, but haunting different spaces. But then you get the really deeply specific stories. And these legends are the ones that are so intrinsically tied to a place that you can't go there without being aware of the links. To so look at Selkie stories, for example. Why are they so tied to places like the Faroe Islands and Scotland and even parts of Ireland, but you don't get them elsewhere? What is it about these places that make the stories appear here? And as Chris Rose points out, it becomes even clearer that not only who we are is profoundly shaped by place, but that place involves power. And by doing psychogeography, we become aware of place and power in equal measure. And the folklore is often tied to both of them. And to be honest with you, it is really just all about place. You can't do psychogeography without looking at place. That's why it's got geography in its name. And it's the folklore or legends that often make a place special. Or is there more to it than that? The Romans believed in the genius loci, or the spirit of a place. And for them, it was a protective spirit, actually tied to the area. So is the practice of psychogeography, an unconscious attempt to encounter this genius loci. For Lappin, a more modern version of the genius loci, is a composite of climate and landscape held together with the cultural markings in a site left by its current residents and those of long ago. So put simply, you could go to Venice and look at the brick heart that's above one of the doorways, and I've got a blog post about this if you're interested and then you can add that to the marks that are left upon the city by its current inhabitants, put those together, and you start to get a sense of the genius loci of Venice. And incidentally, I should point out, the flaneur, we'll go back to him, first emerged in Paris during a period of urbanisation. So at this point, the city landscape changed quite dramatically to incorporate new forms of shopping, transport, architecture, And and basically the observation of the city coincided with this period of rapid change where these new symbols of modernism were sweeping away the older legends and superstitions. But while they were trying to get rid of them, they were uncovering them in the first place. And I've got one example for you. And that's John Clarke notes the so-called London Stone and its medieval phrase that goes with it. And according to this particular myth, there's this stone which dates back to London's foundations in the Roman era. And according to the myth, this stone must remain in the city, otherwise it'll fall. And the proverb goes, So long as the stone of Brutus is safe, so long will London flourish. Now, people who know what they're doing, like Peter Ackroyd, Jennifer Westwood and Jacqueline Simpson, all quote this thing and, and date it to the medieval period. But Clark points out it only dates to 1862. So it basically links this chunk of rock, and that's literally all it is, in the city of London. It links it with the founding myths of London in this specific place where the stone is, draws its power from basically folklore. And this in itself, to me, is where you get the crossover between psychogeography and folklore, that you have these places that inextricably have some sense of power. And there's usually an old legend or a superstition associated with them, but it's by doing psychogeography that you encounter them. And obviously there are the links with the occult. So. If you look at, for example, Alan Woods from Hell, many people started to show renewed interest in particular sites around London. And here, the occult history emerges out of the urban landscape through the signs and symbols that most people would ignore, but not psychogeographers, because their intense focus on this area leads them to pay more attention. So architectural foibles suddenly take on a new significance. And there's a fantastic write-up on the Bohemian blog which refers to From Hell as a study not of stones, but rather a very personal exploration of the meanings etched into them. And they've got a really comprehensive blog post where somebody followed the routes on the map between significant locations in the graphic novel to do like a modern form of psychogeography that was particularly concerned with the occult sites of London. And basically remember that all occult actually means is hidden. And to me, this is really the key link in psychogeography with folklore. It's all just a means of teasing the hidden back into plain view. And by doing psychogeography, we can uncover lost stories and forgotten legends. And, you know, maybe we can breathe new life back into old figures that once walked these streets beside us. So next time you've got a spare half hour, give it a go. You can walk somewhere familiar with fresh eyes or choose somewhere unfamiliar, armed with curiosity, and unfortunately your smartphone because let's be honest safety is still your priority so if you do decide to give psychogeography a go and it is quite fascinating please make sure somebody knows where you're going because i don't want anything to happen to you now that is the end of this week's episode hopefully you've enjoyed it hopefully it's piqued your interest about giving psychogeography a go Um, you can definitely have a look around your hometown or wherever it is that you're living now and uncounter weird little bits that you maybe didn't know before, purely just by paying attention to strange markings on the wall, ghost signs, place names even, anything like that. So if you do decide to give it a go, please let me know. There are, as ever, pictures on the blog post that goes with this episode, which is at www.iccedgwick.com forward slash psychogeography. And if you've want anything in particular to do with urban folklore for future episodes this month please just let me know we are going to be doing the phantom hitchhiker of london next week which is quite an interesting story so look forward to that one otherwise i will leave you with this tiny message that i've actually updated my patreon bonuses so you can have a look at those if you're interested in supporting the show and getting exclusive content which you will only be able to get as a subscriber Anyway, that is that for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you have a go to psychogeography before the weather turns truly horrific. If you're in the UK, I mean, it's already windy now. But anyway, I don't want to be that British person who only talks about the weather. So whatever you're doing, have an absolutely fabulous week ahead and I will see you soon. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!